1: I'm Eleanor Wachtel, and this is Writers & Company from the Archives. Today, German-American writer and artist Nora Krug. Her graphic memoir, Belonging, explores the history of her family as well as of her homeland. Her new book is a visual diary of Russia's war on Ukraine. Nora Krug was born in 1977 in Karlsruhe, Germany, a town of about 300,000 in the southwest part of the country. She grew up with a wide-ranging interest in the arts, first studying classical music, then set design in Liverpool, documentary filmmaking in Berlin, and illustration in New York. While still a student at the Parsons School of Design in Manhattan, where she now teaches, she got her first assignment to illustrate an op-ed piece for the New York Times. Krug went on to have her work featured in The Guardian, Le Monde Diplomatique, the Literary Art Journal of Public Space, and a number of anthologies of Best Comic Art. She was also awarded fellowships from Fulbright, Guggenheim, the Jackson Pollock Lee Krasner Foundation, and the Maurice Sendak Foundation. And she won three gold medals and a silver from the Society of Illustrators. I mention all this because in the world of graphic art, Nora Krug was already a star— But it was with her 2018 title, a 288-page illustrated and hand-lettered memoir, Belonging, that she gained wider acclaim. Not only was it on many Best of the Year lists, but it was also the winner of the National Book Critics Circle Award, and Krug was named Illustrator of the Year by the Victoria and Albert Museum. Ambitious and unconventional, Belonging incorporates a striking variety of visual devices— black-and-white photographs, scanned newspapers and government documents, postcards, children's exercise books, sketches, watercolors, cartoon art, as well as her text. It grew out of earlier illustrated work, a series of short visual biographies, some of which related to people caught in wars. For instance, Fukutsu, about Hiro Unoda, a Japanese soldier who stayed hidden in the Philippine jungle until 1974, 29 years after the end of the Second World War. More recently, she was the illustrator of the graphic adaptation of On Tyranny by Timothy Snyder named Best Graphic Novel of the Year by the New York Times. As Nora Krug has said, she's interested in exploring how political and social issues can be communicated on an emotional and personal level through visual narratives. This is nowhere more in evidence than in Belonging, an unflinching and compassionate investigation into her own family's involvement in the Second World War and the weight of history on successive generations. Krug accomplishes this through an original mix of detailed accounts and reflections, punctuated by images of emblematic German products, from, as she calls it, the notebook of a homesick émigré. The last one pictured is of a powerful glue, the strongest available, though, she adds, it still cannot cover up the crack. I spoke to Nora Krug from the CBC's New York studio in 2019. Just a note, this interview deals with difficult subjects, including the Holocaust and anti-Semitism. The German word for Heimat is a term with particular resonance and, and one that the English translation belonging doesn't fully capture. It's a concept that comes up often in your memoir. What does it mean? How would you define Heimat?
0: Well, it is a difficult term to define. I think broadly speaking, it means the place that you feel you most belong or once most belonged to and the place basically where you feel understood and you feel like you can understand others. But I do think it's a very individual term. I think it's, uh, it's different for everybody and I think everybody has the right to, to claim it as their own and to, to define it any way that they want. As, as you've described
1: it, uh, Heimat seems to encompass landscape, culture, language, music, even smell. I mean, can you talk about your own relation to Hymat? what you most
0: associate with the word? to me it's very closely related to my childhood it represents uh, almost a, a utopian state of mind something that is gone and that i can't recapture but that i hold onto in some way and so i have very deeply emotional connotations with it such as walks with my family in the forest or in the in the vineyards uh, close to my hometown and particular kinds of food we ate such as uh, liver dumplings and um so that's um that's what i associate with it but uh it always comes along with with a slight slight feeling of of loss um because i feel like it's something of the past to me is it nostalgia well nostalgia in germany is not necessarily a positive word um it's something that um, we think of as a term that describes something um again utopian and idealized, and I think for a German that's a problematic notion because we don't want to ide- idealize our country because of you know the atrocities uh, committed in in our recent past so um I wouldn't use the word nostalgia more just something associated with my childhood. And I think to a lot of Germans, the term Heimat is a conflicted one in any case, because it's one of the many things that the Nazis misappropriated. They defined it as a static place that was exclusive to a particular kind of person and a particular time in history. And so many Germans have been hesitant um, to use it. And unfortunately, now with the um, resurfacing of the extreme right in Germany, it has been Predominantly used by by that group of people, which is of course very troubling. Landscapes
1: and especially forests are are a part of the Heimat that you evoke in in your memoir. Forests even feature as a series of quintessentially German things. What, what what's so special about a, a German forest? What's you even mentioned? You know, walking in the forest with your family.
0: It's hard for me to put my finger on it, but I I think it's been. metaphor of um, it's a space that I think has been described throughout history in Germany, in poems, in literature in songs as a place of solace or a place of calmness that you can retreat to, to find yourself in a way an introspective place and it's always had that role for me as well I just feel calm in the forest, uh, and you know, in a way that I don't feel calm anywhere else, really. And during my research, you know, my book is as much about my own family history in the Second World War as it is um, an attempt of looking for my own cultural identity and for what it means to a German growing up in the second generation after the war. I went to a lot of uh, flea markets across Germany to basically look for clues to my own cultural identity. And I thought that maybe if I look at the kinds of ephemera people collected or photographs they took before the two world wars, I can get a sense of, of what Germans were thinking about at that point. And many of these photographs, in fact, um, feature forests and other kinds of landscapes. And a recurring image that I found over and over again at flea markets was that of a person from behind looking at a landscape. And it seems to me that um, looking at a German landscape associates this idea of, of looking inwards and trying to find one's own roots in a way. You grew up in the city of Karlsruhe in southwest Germany. What, what's it like there? It's a mid-sized town that's um, very bureaucratic. It also has the, the highest court of Germany is, is located there. It has a number of good universities, and it's also located just half an hour from, from France. We used to uh, cycle to France, my parents had a little house there across the border, and I remember actually passing through tiny villages in, in Alsace, that region that had been fought over between France and Germany for centuries, really. And um, some of these villages in in Alsace have um, tanks displayed in their uh, on their main uh, squares. And uh, some of them point towards the direction of Germany. And I remember my father pointing that out to me when I was a child as we cycled by these tanks saying, you know, this is a a tank from the Second World War and it still points towards us, basically. And that was a very, you know, memorable uh, experience for me.
1: Well, even in in the opening of of your your visual memoir, Belonging, you you say that from an early age part of you understood that something had once gone horribly wrong. I mean, it's a disturbing awareness for a child. Where where did it come from?
0: Yeah, for a German growing up in the Second generation after World War Two, the shadow or the memory of the war was in a way always present, even though it wasn't always spoken about, but it, it felt like a, a shadow that was always there. And in my particular case, my family backyard was directly adjacent to a U.S. military air base from which planes took off and landed on a daily basis. And they tended to fly really, really close to our homes, you know, very low, and i really grew up uh, with this sense of uh, both the sound of these screaming airplanes that that uh, represented some sort of a threat but um i also understood that um these were Basically, the people who were stationed in our country, uh, the Americans who were there to make sure that we didn't do again what we had once done before. And so even before I knew anything about the war or the Holocaust, I knew that we had done something wrong. And that because of that, there were these people immediately above my head, basically, who uh, monitored us. So I think that was probably my earliest understanding of, of our country once having made a bad decision, basically.
1: Could you read from the first chapter of Belonging? Yes.
0: I don't remember when I first heard the word Konzentrationslager, but I became aware of it long before I learned about the Holocaust. I sensed that concentration camps were sinister places, and I imagined that the people who lived there were forced to concentrate to the point of physical anguish. But I was too afraid to ask feeling that this was something embarrassing to talk about, something that grown-ups discussed in whispers, something evoking the same unsettling feeling as the man who sometimes gave candy and balloons to my brother and me when we were playing alone in the front yard. Throughout my childhood, the war was present, but unacknowledged, like the heirloom lines had tureen stored behind our usual dishware. I understood that the war was a loud and deadly event, and that it happened before my parents were born. I knew that my country refused the idea of engaging in war ever since the war. I thought that there was nothing heroic or meaningful about being a soldier, and that preserving peace was paramount. The notion that other countries could still be at war seemed to me like madness." Though my parents weren't religious, they occasionally took my brother and me to church on Sundays, when we were children, so that we would grow up believing in something. I remember waiting in line outside the confessional box, desperately trying to recall a guilty-evoking enough incident to be confessed. Even though I didn't understand why Jesus died for our sins, the concept of inherited sin, as the Germans call original sin, and of having to bear the consequences of another generation's actions, seemed familiar, and I swore to Jesus that I would accept it. After finishing my confession, I knelt down on the unforgiving wooden plank and made amends by saying four Hail Marys.
1: Nora Krug, reading from her memoir, Belonging. You say that you grew up with, without a sense of, of cultural identity. You never, you never learned the lyrics to the national anthem. You never learned old folk songs. Did you understand why?
0: Yes. I mean, when we learned about the war in school, we really learned everything there was to learn about it, which was, of course, incredibly important. We uh, visited concentration camp museums. We uh, analyzed Adolf Hitler's speeches word by word. We spoke to old women who'd come all the way from America to tell us about their experiences uh, of the camps. And that rigorous education about the atrocities committed by our country went hand in hand with a lack of pride in the cultural achievements that existed long before the Nazis came along. So yeah, we never learned our national anthem. We never learned old folk songs, which in retrospect, I really perceive as a, as an immense cultural loss because old folk songs that had been sung for, for centuries in your country, can really teach you so much about human values, you know, such as faithfulness or uh, steadfastness. And I feel if you don't have this cultural rootedness or identification, for me, it it caused a sense of cultural disorientation and uh, emotional paralysis, which had a negative side effect because um, we were not really given the tools in school to use the knowledge that we had learned about the war and the Holocaust and apply that knowledge to to the present. And I think having been able to do that, we would have come out more strongly on the other end. We would have been able to take responsibility for the actions that our grandparents committed instead of just feeling this um, collective sense of, of, of shame, which... I in retrospect came to understand was nothing but an empty gesture. It wasn't really it didn't allow us to take real responsibility because we were not asked to to ask individual questions to address the guilt in an individual way by going back into our families and asking about what happened in our families or on our streets or in our hometown which could have made us feel stronger. So it wasn't just folk songs. It was also that you weren't encouraged to research what happened in your own city or, or your own family. Yes. In a way, if you just learn the historic facts, you you look at them from the outside. But if you ask about what happened in your own family, you can identify more, which is you know harder. But I think it also makes you understand that what happened could always happen again. And you have to really make sure that it doesn't. And you have to not only think about uh, what would I have done living through you know living under a dictatorial regime, but you would ask yourself what am I doing now to fight for a more tolerant society on a daily basis
1: so it would never have come up to uh, amongst your classmates to ask about one another's
0: families or grandparents yeah we never we never asked each other i mean I think. I only realized in retrospect that that must have been an unspoken taboo. I mean, nobody ever said you shouldn't ask, but we never thought to ask each other what happened in each other's families. And yet we learned so much about the war in school, and it seemed like a complete disconnect in a way. I mean, of course, that was not necessarily every German's perspective or experience. It, I think, probably depended a lot on which uh, state in Germany you grew up in, who your teacher was, um, whether you spoke about these things in your family. So I can't make a um, universal statement, but for me that certainly was the case. I don't remember a single instance when my classmates and I talked about our own family's involvement in the war. And in fact, uh, while doing the research on the book, I actually went back uh, and contacted a lot of my old classmates and and finally asked these questions. And it was very interesting to to hear about um, what they had to say. And some of my classmates, which I wasn't aware of at the time, were actually Jewish. And that's um, another thing that, uh, you know, that they never talked about. I had no idea that I had uh, Jewish classmates.
1: I'd like to hear a little more about your childhood in Germany. Your, your parents were teachers?
0: Yes, they were both teachers for the blind and the deaf.
1: Oh, that's i mean i think it's something you've observed yourself was kind of the opposite of you in terms of teaching for the blind and and you tell stories through images <laughs> yes. <laughs>
0: yes i've uh i find that paradoxical and and what were their own interests or
1: enthusiasms
0: well, I mean, they've always had a strong interest in the arts, and uh we we used to go on family vacations to Italy and uh you know went basically endlessly on excursions to local museums and old churches with Piero della Francesca murals. I received a very rigorous um you know cultural. <laughs> An art education through them that uh, for a while led me to um, develop a slight aversion towards museums because I just felt like I, I had had too much of that. Uh, but um, yeah, I grew up you know very, with a very close relationship to my parents, which also allowed me to, to work on that book because they were supportive of it from the beginning.
1: Do, do you know where their interest in the arts came from? I mean, your your father's parents were, were farmers. Your mother was the child of, of a mechanic and, and a milk shop owner.
0: I don't really know. I think it was, I mean, for my mother at least, it was a way of um, escaping her 1950s, uh, early 60s upbringing in a, a Germany that was post-war prudish society, basically, that had not yet f- reflected on or faced its, its troubled past. I mean, that process really only began in the, in the late 60s. So I think, you know, reading Russian novels and uh, dreaming of visiting Italy and France was, was just a way for her to escape that. And I, probably it was also a way of escaping Germany's tainted past in a way and looking elsewhere. And, but given your upbringing
1: and, and and although I understand your resistance to galleries after that early exposure, but it, it does seem natural you would be drawn to the arts. But you say the illustration wasn't your original ambition. You say you came to it by accident. What happened?
0: Well, I I grew up as somebody who had many many interests, and I went to music middle and high school, and my major was the violin. I was also interested in dance and acting and psychology and languages. I just, um, I didn't really know where to begin. And uh, then I heard about a school in Liverpool that had been founded by Paul McCartney um, in the in the mid-90s. And that fascinated me because it was a school for musicians, dancers, actors and designers. And I thought maybe if I studied there, I could find out what I really want to do. So I moved to Liverpool right after graduating from high school and I studied there for three years in the performance design program. And then I moved to Berlin and I studied visual communication and then suddenly came across... This professor who was an illustrator and who taught illustration and uh, I really liked his perspective on the medium because to him it was not at all about, you know, basically pushing around paint on the canvas or indulging in in the technique, but it was clearly a way of communicating ideas about the world or about assessing your own relationship with the world, asking questions about the world. And that's exactly what I what I was interested in. And in a way, it didn't matter to me what the medium was. You know, I wanted to communicate ideas, but uh, yeah, I've never seen illustration as a way of just indulging in in the act of drawing. In fact, I I often dread it. I I, I struggle a lot when I draw. You know, I don't even have a sketchbook. I can go for months without drawing a single line. I don't miss it. And I only really sit down at the drawing desk when I have a project, when I when I sign a new contract, because it is, for me, about telling a story.
1: And, and one of the things you do in, in, is, is put yourself in the minds of characters in order to illustrate their thoughts and emotions. And I think this is also true of your your 2009 project, Red Riding Hood Redux, in which almost sort of Rashomon-like, you reimagine the popular folk tale from the point of view of each character, Red Riding Hood, the, the wolf, the hunter, the grandmother, even Red Riding Hood's mother. What made you want to take on this classic tale from the Brothers Grimm?
0: Well, I wanted to choose a a story that everybody was familiar with. And uh, Red Riding Hood is just such a classically just a universal story that's known everywhere in the world. And I wanted to give myself the challenge of imagining all the little side stories around the original tale. So I wondered what did the mother do after Red Riding Hood went into the forest? Because we, we never see that part of the story. So I developed a A wordless visual narrative that's comprised of five little booklets, each one of them representing the literal viewpoint of each of the original characters in the book. So Red Riding Hood, the wolf, the mother, the grandmother and the hunter. And in every panel you see exactly what each character sees. And when you line up all of the books um, at the same page number, you see the same exact moment experienced from the different points of view. And I think in a way for me it was not only about the fairy tale but also uh, an investigation into German cultural identity, you know, looking back. I think it was a way of returning to my to my home because I was living abroad, at, you know, I was living in America at the time and I think it was a way of, of reinvestigating my own origin in a way. And yeah, what you said about putting yourself into the mindset of a character is really, again, one of the most appealing things to me about the medium of illustration. To me, illustrating is an act of empathy because it allows you to, to get as close as you can into the mindset or the story of somebody else. And in a way, not only writing about and investigating my family's history during the war, but also Challenging myself to imagine it visually by drawing the situations that my grandparents or uncle probably found themselves in was an uh, an act of empathy, but also a test for me. You know how far can my own empathy towards the decisions they made go? And um, visualizing their lives helped me try to understand more closely the decisions they made under the dictatorial regime. We'll we'll talk about that
1: uh, again in a moment. But just staying with with Red Riding Hood for now, you, you, there are a couple of unusual aspects to to this project: it, it, the fact that it has no text, and that by telling the story from each character's perspective, you, you unlock parts of their lives that were previously unimagined. And you say, for instance, what Red Riding Hood's mother was doing when. Her daughter was going off into the woods to bring food to the grandmother. You have her having an illicit affair. I mean, you, there's there's a whole dark side to the story that that uh, seems to work around in, in your narrative. Why, why take these familiar characters to, to such dark places?
0: It's certainly not a a book for children, but, uh, you know, when you read the original fairy tales, they're extremely brutal. And even the original Grimm fairy tales apparently were beautified. I mean, I think that the way that the tales had been told before the Grimm brothers wrote them down were allegedly even more brutal. And I don't know, I think I was probably interested in exploring that more adult perspective And yes, so in my version uh, of events, the mother has a secret love affair with a hunter who accidentally shot the grandmother's husband, um, and the grandmother turned into an alcoholic because of the death of her husband. And I don't know. I went a bit over the top. (laughs) (laughs) Well, is
1: this what goes on in the German forest?
0: (laughs) uh, Not the parts that I've been hiking in, but uh, who knows? (laughs)
1: Nora Krug, you've lived away from Germany for nearly two decades, making your home in, in New York City. Yet you write that after all these years, you feel more German than ever before. How so?
0: Yeah, when you uh, live abroad as a, somebody from another culture, you suddenly realize how deeply impacted you are by your own culture. I mean, you're confronted. I've been confronted with my own Germanness in a way that I was never... Uh, before when I when I lived in Germany, and um, of course I was also aware, living in in America for so long, that my accent alone can evoke Germany's troubled past and the atrocities that that the Nazis committed. So um, I, yeah, I was also equally uh, confronted directly with my country's troubled history. And there's something that uh, Hannah Arendt said once, which is if everyone is guilty no one is and i think that's really what what i experienced living in germany is that when you come from a culture where most people were followers of a dictatorial regime you feel like there's nothing really you need to to investigate about that because everybody had been part of this, uh, of this movement. But then when you leave that familiar feeling, you, you're much more directly confronted with, with that past and um, you realize that, that you do have to continue to ask questions.
1: You were saying that your parents were very supportive of the project, but do you, why, why do you think your own curiosity, your own need to know so vastly outweighed that of your parents' generation?
0: I do think that uh, it had to do with my leaving home, and not uh, not only when I moved abroad to study, but also when I visited other countries uh, as a teenager. I mean, I went on a lot of student exchange programs in England and Ireland, and I was often confronted with negative stereotypes about my home country. I was greeted with Heil Hitler, and I think my parents didn't have, you know, as many opportunities to live abroad as I did, and and therefore be uh, confronted with this uh, role of a German representing their country abroad. And also, when my parents first learned about the war war and the Holocaust, they didn't have the same technological uh, tools available that are available now. I mean, you can find out so much on the Internet, but there are also a lot of files that weren't made accessible uh, when my parents were teenagers that I was able to access And then there's, of course, also the generational distance. I mean, I feel like it's um, probably easier to gain perspective if there's one generation in between, and it's also probably easier to investigate your grandparents than it is to investigate your parents, who you have a much closer and probably more conflicted relationship with.
1: One thing that happened to you, very soon after you moved to New York was an encounter, and, and you, you, you tell that story right at, at the beginning of, of Belonging. C- could you read that?
0: Yes. It was one of my first encounters in New York City. I was standing on the rooftop of my friend's apartment building, the only person I knew so far in the city. I had just moved here from Berlin to study. I didn't know anyone. No one knew me. Everything was possible. An elderly woman sitting in a lounge chair had overheard our conversation. ''Where are you from?'' she asked me. ''I'm from Germany.'' That's what I thought. ''Have you ever been to Germany?'' I asked. ''Yes, a long, long time ago.'' She avoided eye contact, and then I understood. She went on to tell me about how she had survived the concentration camp... Because one of the female guards had rescued her from the gas chamber sixteen times at the last moment. The guard, who had exhibited merciless violence towards everyone else in the camp, regularly knocking prisoners' heads together for punishment, had had, the elderly woman suspected, a secret crush on her. Sixteen times on the edge of the gas chamber, sixteen times escaping immediate death by a hair's breadth. Sixteen times seeing others walk into their deaths while you must live. A familiar heat began to form in the pit of my stomach. How do you react, as a German, standing across from a human being, who reveals this memory to you? I remained silent. That was a long time ago, she finally said. I'm sure things have changed. You seem like someone who was raised by loving parents. I nodded. Nora
1: Krug, reading from her memoir, Belonging. You had met Holocaust survivors before, I mean, even as a child in school. What was it about this encounter that had such a profound impact on you?
0: I think it was the unexpectedness of of meeting somebody who had this experience uh, on the rooftop just visiting my friend's apartment building and also the intimacy of the uh, encounter because we were the, the only three people on the rooftop And um, also her openness, I mean, there was nothing judgmental in the way she talked to me. Of course, I felt terrible and sorry and um, deeply ashamed, but she didn't try to make me feel like that. She just told me what happened. And then there was also obviously the uh, just the unbelievable uh, facts of her story that she had been rescued. I mean, rescue is not really the right word because the woman who did this was one of the most notorious um, Nazi death camp uh, guards in the history of of the Nazi regime, but who basically saved her life by um, taking her out of the gas chamber 16 times.
1: You recently reconnected with this woman 16 years after first meeting her on the rooftop in the Upper West Side in New York. How did that come about?
0: I wanted to reconnect to her, but I was also very insecure about it. I didn't know what she would think about me telling you know this this excerpt of her own life story I didn't know how she would feel about talking to me in general as somebody who's experienced um, such a horrible thing done to her by my people and I contacted a friend of mine who has you know knows a lot of uh, German Jewish emigres of that German generation and I thought maybe he can he can find her so I Gave him uh, her name, and within just a couple of hours, he texted me and told me that he had found out where she lives. He had told her about me, and now she's waiting to receive my phone call. And I felt really <laughs> terrified, so I let a few weeks pass, and then he kept on texting me, saying, "You know, she called me. She she's waiting for your call. Why aren't you calling her?" So I felt like I had no choice, and I, and I called her, and then I I. I told her who I was and I told her that I had met her 16 years ago on her rooftop and she had told me her story and she didn't remember the encounter. But as I was telling her about this encounter, I suddenly broke out in tears and that has never happened to me in front of a stranger. It was really, I was shocked, completely shocked that I would suddenly break down in tears and um, she was very kind, and she just waited until I had to regain composure. And then she said, um, do you want to come over to my place for lunch? And I was really so deeply touched by her generosity, and um, I said yes. And so, um, you know, that night I, I was lying awake in bed, and I wondered why I had had such an emotional um, outburst on the phone, and I realized that it was the, the immediacy of, of history that hearing her voice, and 16 years ago, standing right across this physical human being who has these memories embedded, you know, the memories that I had read about in history class, you know, in a very distanced ways. And she physically represented that history. And I was just reminded of the fact that history is not a thing of the past, that history is Part of the present, and that it shapes us, and it made us who we are, and we have a responsibility of keeping it alive and that 's why this encounter with this woman just um, struck me on such a deep emotional level and Then I went to her place, to the same exact place where I had met her sixteen years before, and we immediately connected emotionally and she told me about her um, her experience of being in the camps, and she Knew Josef Mengele in person. I mean, she knew those terrible, terrible people that we have all heard about, and she had seen them and experienced them in the flesh. And it was so deeply disturbing, but also, uh, you know, important for me to hear these stories. And um, we really became friends. I mean, the, the lunch lasted for three hours, and. She said, you know, let's stay in touch and let's meet again soon. And then I went on book tour to Europe for several weeks and she called me while I was on book tour in Europe. And then I came back and I wanted to, to see her again. And I um, I called her and it said, uh, this number is disconnected. And I immediately panicked and I Googled her name and I found out that uh, she had sadly passed away. And I felt a huge Loss. Uh, I really felt like uh, not only had I les- lost this new friend, but I had lost the chance to hear these stories. I, I, you know, I felt like there was so much more to hear and to preserve, and it's it's devastating that we're at this generational shift and all these memories are disappearing into thin air, and we have to we have to do everything we can to preserve them. Oh, I. I
1: I, I had heard part of the story but I I, I didn't realize that she had died. At yeah. least you called her. I mean, imagine how you'd feel if you hadn't connected at all, you know.
0: Yeah, I'm 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 really grateful for, you know, both being able to reconnect with her and also um she read my book and she she was moved by it and she was very happy that um I I, I mean that was very important to me to to know that um, she, you know, she was was fine with me telling her story, and she was, she said, "Oh, I'm sorry that you didn't that you didn't put down my name." <laughs> I think she would have liked to be have been named in person, um, and uh, so I was I was relieved to also hear that she was fine that I that I began the book with her story. And what was her name? Alice Tannenbaum. Nora Krug,
1: your memoir focuses on two members of your family in particular, your maternal grandfather, Willy and your father's brother, your uncle, Franz Karl. And Franz Karl, when he was 17 in 1943, was drafted into the SS and sent to fight on the front line in Italy. He was killed in battle a year later at the age of 18, and your much younger father was named after him. Can you tell me a bit about your uncle, what you knew of him from an early age?
0: I knew very little. I only knew the things that my grandmother had told my father, which was mainly that um, he was basically a model child. He was very well behaved. He was a sweet boy. And that my father, in contrast to him, was ill-tempered and um, skipped school and never did what his mother said. And so my father grew up with this shadow of the perfect brother who had died. And so the brother was much more than a, a a child or a human being. He was idolized in a way. And when I was about 13 years old, I found in the mahogany cabinet of our living room, I found his sixth grade school exercise books that contained stories that he had written and that were adorned in the mar- margins with illustrations, a lot of which were Nazi-themed swastikas and tanks and Nazi flags. And a lot of these stories were about um, heroic Viking adventures and the life cycle of the Maybug, um, the importance of personal hygiene and uh, charity and Adolf Hitler's difficult childhood, but also Terrible, terrible, and disturbing stories. Um, Nazi propaganda, basically. One of which was entitled "The Jew, a poisonous mushroom," which compared um, Jewish people with with poisonous mushrooms. And um, it was deeply disturbing for me to to see these exercise books and. And There was a, an eerie sense of intimacy because it was the closest I, c- I could get to my uncle at the time. And at the same time, of course, I was appalled because I knew at that point that um, the stories that uh, these um, books contained uh, were, were just disturbing and, and wrong. Your uncle's notebooks,
1: I mean, understandably uh, disturbed and intrigued you. And you write that you tried desperately to find him somewhere between the lines of his propagandistic essays. What were you looking for?
0: A human side, probably. I mean, of course, they were filled with propaganda, but you look, you know, you look in between the lines and you look... In the images, or you look at the choice of words, and um, you know, I I, I try to find him, I try to find a, a human side, and I you know I could find it just in a in a few stories that were also probably you know had a, a propagandistic aspect to them but there was one that he wrote on Mother's Day about it's a a little description of what he did um, on that particular day he picked flowers for his mother again something my father probably wouldn't have done and put them in a vase on the table and he put a cup out for her that said Happy Mother's Day and you know there there were glimpses of a more human side but then again it was Adolf Hitler who introduced reintroduced uh, Mother's Day so into German culture. So um, again, it was one of the things that the Nazis misappropriated and in a way, therefore, it was also a propagandistic story. So it's it's one of the things that intrigued me during my research in general was that how deeply politic, the political and the personal intersect. I mean, you can't separate the two. We are so deeply uh, impacted on a personal level by the memory of war and the history that was written about our country. It's it's just, you can't separate yourself from these things. You were saying your father grew up in the shadow of his brother,
1: and as the less than perfect son, and and, and how that was very hard for him. But it seems like his experience of his hometown, of Kulzheim, was, you quote, nothing but an open wound. I mean, that sounds more severe. What made his childhood there so difficult?
0: Um, he was completely neglected. His father died the year after he was born in a um, farming accident. And so he grew up without a father. But sometimes he even said that that was actually a lucky thing because he had a lot of friends who were severely beaten by their fathers and uh, I think he grew up in a place and at a time where such behavior was accepted and common and but the result of not growing up with a father was that um, uh, he was beaten by his uncle who felt like he needed to discipline his nephew because there was no father and also that he was completely neglected because his mother was really struggling to to keep the small farm going that she had inherited basically from her husband and um his mother was also a really peculiar and deeply self-centered person um who yeah i think she had no idea of how to bring up a child in in any regard i mean there were stories my father told me like um you know there was a there was a village wine festival after the wine had been harvested and he was basically been made drunk by older kids in town and everybody was just laughing about him walking around completely drunk in the streets of his village and nobody cared yeah, I, I think it was a deeply traumatic childhood, but I think he really tried to reinvent himself after leaving to study elsewhere. I mean, he also went to a Catholic school and um, unfortunately there was a lot of physical violence there too on the side of, uh, you know, of the teachers, um, physical punishment. And uh, when he left, he tried to leave all of that behind and managed pretty well trying to basically sweep it all under the rug which is not the most healthy way of dealing with it but he had no other way of 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 dealing with it and uh, i think it was only when i worked on the book and asked him in more depth about his childhood uh, that he deeply understood how disturbing his childhood actually was i think he hadn't really internalized that until now and um it was actually the first time he he ever returned to his village. Uh, when I went there, he came with me, and I think, it, yeah, it was an important important thing for him to do.
1: And and you discovered uh, that uh, Kultzheim has a, a long history of violent anti Semitism dating back to the 13th century. Some some of which you illustrate in in your book Belonging. Yet your father wasn't aware of his hometown's troubled past not even the deportation of Jewish residents during the Second World War. Is this this erasure, is is it typical, do you think?
0: Um, I think it was typical for a particular time. And the added challenge, I mean, I think there are very different dynamics in big cities versus small towns or villages. Uh, The thing with small villages is that... um, everybody knows each other and everybody knows what each other's parents and grandparents and great-grandparents did and who they knew, who they were friends with, who they had a falling out with centuries ago. I mean, these narratives are preserved in a very different way in a small town than they are in a big city where people come and go and you just forget more quickly. And so I think these memories of the war are much more difficult to address in a way because you 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 still know now who the main Nazi leaders in that village were and who their grandchildren are and um so it's a much more sensitive topic and i think therefore probably a bigger taboo than in other places but that that said there are several local historians in the village where my father came from who have been working really hard since the 1980s to uncover the local history and the history of the Jews and have done a tremendous work and are deeply dedicated to preserving these histories. So there's actually a lot, a lot happening, but, um, every, every village's dynamic is different too. I mean, there's one neighboring town that, um, where the main street is still named after an anti-Semitic knight who uh, erased the entire Jewish uh, community in the Middle Ages of the entire region. And the main street is still named after him. And then when you go to another neighboring town, there is a synagogue that was uh, fully restored by the men in town in an act of atonement. And when the synagogue was reopened, survivors came to the village from America and from Israel to um, to take part in the ceremony and uh, people who had been uh, Nazis actually went over to them and apologized for the things that they had done and I mean of course you there's no way of, of, of um, you know, I, I think you can't and shouldn't ever ask for forgiveness for the unforgivable. So I'm not saying a simple apology is, is enough or anything, but I'm just intrigued by how each town handles these things differently.
1: Nora Krug, just as the memory of your paternal uncle, Franz Karl, took on a kind of mythical quality after his death, there were there were family myths associated with your maternal grandfather, Vili. What what did you know about him?
0: Um, I only knew what my mother and my aunt had told me about him, that he had been a driving teacher during the war, um, teaching German soldiers how to drive. And because of that, he was needed at the so-called home front and wasn't sent to the front line, which... Provided a sense of comfort to my guilt-ridden teenage mind, and I always imagined him glued to his, you know, the seat of his car while other grandparents were committing terrible atrocities far away. And I, I also was told that he had always voted for the Social Democrats, which was the Nazis' biggest political enemy, and is the Democratic uh, Party in Germany. And so I, um, I. Didn't suspect anything, anything terrible about him. And my aunt had also told me that he had worked before the war for a Jewish linen salesman, with whom he had travelled across the countryside, and that the two of them had had a very good relationship. Um, But then there were also these rumors that had um, circulated in my wider family uh, about how he had later hid his former Jewish employer in the garden shed of his mother-in-law's backyard, a garden shed that was actually destroyed when the entire neighborhood had been erased to the ground by Allied bombings. And also the rumor about he himself having Jewish roots because, as they said it, uh, of the way he looked. And also because his uh, mother um, had had red hair, which is actually another stereotypical idea that I think has circulated since the Middle Ages in Europe, that Jewish people have red hair. And uh, so those were these strange, mysterious rumors that um, were embellished the narrative of my of my grandfather but i didn't know anything else about him other than that and because the names of uh, major perpetrators and also those involved in the german resistance in important ways uh, are very much in the public eye in germany i assumed that my grandfather didn't fall into either of these categories but then i also realized that it was exactly that category in the middle the that of those living in the gray zones of the war that I needed to investigate because it's exactly that category that I think can tell us most about how dictatorial regimes come to be.
1: Because you requested your grandfather's U.S. military file from from the archives because after the war, when when West Germany was occupied by the, the Allies, the U.S. Army issued a questionnaire to every adult living in the U.S. sector, which included Karlsruhe. What was it like uh, to hold those pages in, in your hands, I mean, the physical document that he had filled out?
0: Yeah, so these were files compiled in 1945 and 1946 by the U.S. military and they contained 330 questions that would tell the military something about the Germans' involvement under the regime, basically. So I asked the archivist uh, whether there was such a file about my grandfather available and he found it and I felt like uh, sitting at a doctor's office being tested for a rare genetic disease and uh then i saw my grandfather's name staring at up at me from the from the binder and it was the file that uh, he he had filled out 70 years before and that had probably not seen the daylight in in two generations and i remember holding this piece of paper in my hand and i felt like um you know this was the exact same paper that he once had held in his hands and I had all these burning questions. He had died a few years before I learned about the war in school. And so I had never had a chance to ask him directly about his political position under the Nazi regime. And I felt like he was finally speaking to me. I mean, it was an extremely powerful moment and, um, yeah, also deeply nerve wracking. Because what did you learn from the file? Well, one of the first questions in the questionnaire was, were you a member of the Nazi Party? And he wrote yes, from 1933 to 1940. And that was a deep shock to not only me, but my entire family, because he had always voted for the Social Democrats. And um, only a few months after voting for them, he had joined the party. And we just, you know, I, I just couldn't understand why. And uh, as I leafed my way through the file, he basically answered the questions um, that I had in my head at that moment because the file contained letters that he had written to the US military in order to make a case for himself and the letters that he received back from them. And so, what uh, the reasons what, that he gave were that in 1933, He wanted to purchase the uh, driving school that uh, he had previously been employed at as a driving teacher. And it just so happened he wrote that the car of the biggest Nazi leader in town, whose name was Robert Wagner, he was actually the man who had endorsed the burning of the synagogues, who had... Endorsed the sterilization and killing of those in deemed unworthy of life um, who had um, imprisoned so-called anti-social elements, social democrats, communists. Uh, who had um, you know, endorsed the, uh, and ordered the uh, deportation of uh, thousands of Jews and hundreds of Sinti and Roma in the entire uh, area of southwest Germany, his car parked in the driving school that my grandfather intended to buy. And he said that one of the conditions for buying the school was that uh, he needed to join the party. And I was really deeply disturbed by the technicality and the banality for the reasons of joining. And I was also not convinced at all because uh, I don't think he, he needed to join the party. And I'm, I'm convinced that there were other possibilities, other options available, but he chose that one. Um, yeah, so it was, uh, it was a very strange feeling to hear it in his own words. By reading the letters that he sent to the U.S. military,
1: along with coming to know your family's past, uh, belonging is, as you were saying, about reconnecting with what it, what it means to be German, about finding your sense, a sense of identity and home. How has writing your memoir changed your understanding of Heimat?
0: I, you know, I think the the purpose of the book had never been to. To make myself feel better, I never saw it as, um, you know, a way of asking for forgiveness or um, uh, you know, making an apology for the Germans or victimizing the Germans. I was, you know, that was my deepest uh, concern or my biggest goal was for for it not to be misunderstood as such, um, because again, I don't think you can ask for or accept forgiveness for something that is clearly unforgivable. But I, I wanted to address this um, collective sense of paralyzing shame, because I realized that that's not a constructive feeling. It's, 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 in a way, a useless feeling. It's an empty gesture because it actually it actually prevents you from from taking full responsibility for what happened in your country. And by asking these individual questions, even though I still feel. Ashamed as a German. And when I speak German on the phone with my parents in the subway in New York City, I still feel deeply insecure because I don't know if somebody sitting next to me might have lost their entire family in the Holocaust. Uh, but i feel like i've come out stronger on the other end because i have asked those individual questions that i needed to ask i haven't shied away from it and i i was able to personalize the guilt in a way but in terms of cultural identity um i still don't i still am not able to fully say i love germany it's just something i find difficult to to physically make my mouth say uh, there are many aspects of German culture that i that I deeply love and connect to, but um I still can 't fully commit to to the word "love" when talking about my feelings towards my own country, and I also can 't pin down what uh, what the term "heimat fully means to me, um, but I do feel committed to to continuing to to try you know I I do feel committed to my country and I feel the book is in a way a love letter to my country it is a commitment to my country and I think before working on the book I never asked myself what I can do for my country I think again that's a question that a lot of Germans shy away from Uh, and I feel like this book is something that I that I gave back and that also speaks to my commitment to my own country. In the epilogue to Belonging,
1: you describe how your father returns to uh, the village of, quote, to visit the land that he inherited, and you ask him to bring you back a handful of soil from the land. Why? What did you want to do with it?
0: Well, I think part of understanding where you come from and part of understanding history in general uh, has to do with a physical and visceral connection that's why i think if you visit sites of terror you know in the united states you know sites of of slavery for instance it's such a powerful feeling because you the physical environment that your f- body is confronted with in a way makes you understand history in a very different way and i think this i mean we're physical beings we're deeply physical beings and i think history and the memory of it is such a physical thing and uh yeah that's why i asked my parents to bring a handful of earth but they yet have not done that uh, but uh, what they have told me last week is that um my father just took the legal steps to to make me inherit the land so basically that land is now mine that little forest and uh, plum trees are now mine. And um, I don't know yet what to do with them. But I have this fantasy um, of building a little wooden house or something on it that I can retreat to sometimes. But I think that's probably just a, a utopian idea. I really enjoyed the chance to talk
1: to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Nora Krug in New York in 2019. Belonging, subtitled A German Reckons with History and Home, is available in paperback from Scribner. Her new book, Diaries of War, Two Visual Accounts from Ukraine and Russia, is a remarkable real-time personal record that Krug solicited from a Ukrainian journalist and an anti-war Russian artist. Narratives that Krug then illustrated. Today's show was produced by Katie Swales. Melissa Gismondi is associate producer, with thanks to Olivia Pasquarelli. Technical operations by Emily Caravaggio. The senior producer of Writers & Company is Sandra Rabinovich. I'm Eleanor Wachtel. Next week, Sigrid Nunez, her eighth title, The Friend, won the 2018 U.S. National Book Award. She followed it with What Are You Going Through? Now she has a new novel, the Vulnerables. That's next week. I hope you join me. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.